Julia's just read to us probably one of the most uh, well-known, famous passages um, from the whole Bible uh, about Jesus meeting this man who came to him in the dark. And there's so much in that chapter that we could unpack. But it's a very curious little verse, if you've got it open. It's verse 14 that we're being asked to look at particularly today. It's a little verse that we often skip over quickly to get on to its most, more famous neighboring verses. And it's the one about the idea of a snake being lifted up in the wilderness, a snake on a stick. And although we don't often think about it very much in church, it's an image that's used still a lot. If you work in um, medicine, it's a, a well-known image, isn't it? That serpent twisted on a stick, and someone after the more earlier service pointed out that plaque on the wall over there. Um, and if you look carefully at the bottom, there's a snake twisting around um, a pot, <laughs> whatever you'd call it, and it's um, it's remembering a, a doctor who died here locally. So it's a well-known image, this idea of the snake on the staff. But how strange that it should be um, a picture of healing when perhaps it should be more an image of death and poison. It's a strange picture, but for the people in this story, it brought about courage and hope and healing and well-being. And my prayer for us this morning is that we too will be encouraged with renewed hope and courage, healing and well-being and life as we leave this place and head out into the week ahead. The title for the talk, as I've already said today, is Planned, Planned. And I remember that um, when I was a child, I think I was in a school assembly, I remember someone coming to tell us about God's plan and basically wanting to summarize the whole of the Bible. And so this person said, well, in the beginning, God made this beautiful world and he put Adam and Eve in it and he gave them the garden to live in. But they broke the rules. They ate of the wrong tree. So he had to chuck them out the garden and start again. And so then God decided to send Moses. And Moses gave the people lots of laws of how to live life right. And it would all be okay. But the people broke his laws. And so a bit later, God sent the prophets to remind them of the laws that Moses sent earlier. But people didn't listen to the prophets. And so then God sent Jesus to show the people how to live properly. But the people killed Jesus. And so then God had to send his Holy Spirit to live inside people so that they could all live happily ever after. Do you think that's right? No, not really. We're not living happily ever after, are we, in many senses? And I don't think that's an accurate picture of the story of the Bible. It gives the impression that God's some sort of hapless person lurching from one failed plan to another to try and get things right. That's not right. When you look at the Bible, there's so much throughout the Old Testament that shows that Jesus wasn't just the latest ploy or the latest plan. Jesus was the plan from the very beginning. He was the plan. And there are more than 300 Verses and prophecies about the fact that Jesus was to come as the Messiah, as the Saviour. 
I know some of you here love your music, and there's the piece Handel's Messiah, isn't there? Amazing music, all verses from the Bible, all about Jesus, and yet most of those verses come from the Old Testament. Some of you with children have probably bought them a lovely little storybook called Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, and the strap line of the book is, every story whispers his name, every story whispers his name. All through the Old Testament, there are whispers of Jesus, like a golden thread going through the Bible, perhaps like the beautiful threads on my quilt here. A golden thread running through the Old Testament. And then when we get to the New Testament, we find so many of the gospel writers and Paul referring back to the Old Testament, showing us how Jesus fulfilled all those promises and prophecies. Even Jesus, on that road to Emmaus, when he sat down with those two disciples, he talked through through the scriptures, showing all the different places that referred to him. There's a couplet I really love. It goes like this. The new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. Did you get that? Yeah. Jesus was the plan right from the very beginning. He was plan A. All these other things weren't failed attempts. He was the plan. And why did he come? He came to bring life, to bring life. That's really clear from the reading that Julia read. In preparing for this morning, I've been enjoying reading some really old sermons written by some of the old Victorian preacher guys, Spurgeon and Alexander McLaren. And um, I can't really do justice to this with my little voice. I need a big rumbling Scottish accent. But um, this is something that McLaren said about the kind of life that Jesus came to bring. Eternal life. Do not bring that down to the narrow and inadequate conception of unending existence. It involves that, but it means a great deal more. It means a life of such a sort as is worth calling life which is a life in union with God and therefore full of blessedness, full of purity, full of satisfaction, full of desire and aspiration, and all these with a stamp of unendingness deeply impressed upon them. Jesus was plan A, he is the plan, and he came to bring life, life in all its fullness. That's the end of part one. There's part two of the talk to come now, and there are only two parts. No three-point sermons today. (laughs) That's the big plan. I want now just to look at this very curious little verse about the snake on the stick in the wilderness. And why would Jesus point to that? Of all the 300 verses in the Old Testament to say something significant to him, in this extraordinary chapter. What was this snake on a stick in the wilderness all about? You might be sitting there, oh yes, I know my Bible history. (laughs) 
But just in case there's one or two people who aren't too sure, I'll just remind you, okay? So we're going to leave Nicodemus and Jesus in this upper dark room in Jerusalem. And we're going to rewind um, a few hundred years back to the time of Moses. And Moses had brought the people out of their life of slavery in Egypt. And they were wandering around in the wilderness. And as happened several times, they were fed up. They were tired. They were impatient. They were angry with Moses and they were angry with God. And as they often said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to bring us to die in the desert? We've got no water. We've got no food. And what we've got to eat is detestable. They weren't very impressed with this manna that God was miraculously providing them with every day to keep them alive. And so, curiously, it says that God sent fiery serpents or poisonous snakes, depending on the version of the Bible you read. And these snakes started to bite the people, and the people died. And so then the people begged Moses that they be saved And so in response, God said to Moses, make a snake, and Moses made one from bronze, put it on a stick, and when the people are bitten, they can look at the snake and be healed. What a strange thing. What a very strange thing to do. It sounds like the snake on the stick was to be some sort of lucky charm or a talisman. That doesn't sound very godlike to me. And why a snake? Why not put a dove or an olive branch or something a bit more hopeful to look up at on the stick? Why put up there an object that represented death to them and perhaps from the very beginning of their story, a a symbol of deception and sin? Why would looking at the snake on the stick bring healing and hope and courage? I've been thinking about this a lot. Maybe, maybe the snake is a distraction. Maybe we should be thinking about the staff, the stick that the snake was mounted on. Moses' staff. That staff, just a little earlier, had struck a rock and given them water. That staff had been raised over the waters and they'd parted for the Israelites to cross. That stick had been raised over the Nile and turned it to blood to persuade Pharaoh to let them go. That stick had been thrown on the floor, turned into a snake, of all things, and then turned back into a staff again. And then there was Aaron, who also had a special staff. His staff, overnight, um, sprouted shoots, it blossomed, it fruited with almonds, and (laughs) all overnight. And that was a sign that Aaron was to look after the people and stop them from grumbling. But just the chapter before, Aaron had died and the people were grumbling again. I think this was more than a a snake on a stick. Moses' raised staff was a reminder of God's care, of his power, his authority, and his strength. He had provided and guided and rescued them time and time again in the past. And all the people had to do was to lift their eyes and put their trust in him once again.
Interestingly, God doesn't take the snakes away, but he gives them a means to be saved. And it's this image of the snake on the stick that Jesus takes for himself to reflect that as Moses lifted that stick, he too had to be lifted up on the cross to bring healing and life. This is a little piece I found. The lesson of the serpent rod of Moses blossoms into the promise that is the cross of Christ. The cross in and of itself was a symbol of the oppression and the deadly power of the Roman Empire. However, through God's mercy, the cross also becomes the tree of life and all who look upon it may be saved by God. There's a message for us, too, about looking up. Nicodemus came and addressed Jesus as teacher, but this isn't a matter of good teaching. This is a matter of life and death. There is something so beautiful about someone turning to God, to Jesus, for the very first time. We read, don't we, that all heaven celebrates when a sinner turns to God. But these Israelites weren't turning, uh, being asked to God to turn for the first time. They had experienced incredible things. He had provided in miraculous ways many, many times. But through disappointment and anger and tiredness, they had become hard-hearted and disappointed And isn't that our story too? Probably between us, Anna had an amazing story to tell that we heard earlier. Yes. (laughs) And we've all got stories to tell about how God has helped us and guided us and held us through all sorts of times in our lives. And yet don't we too get tired, disappointed, have a sense of rejection, isolation, And we can become hard-hearted too. But we too have a saviour who wants us to know fullness through life. Someone who wants us to look up from our darkness, our wilderness years, our fiery serpents which are nipping at our heels, and look to the cross, to look to Jesus who wanted to bring life. So what does that literally mean for us? Nice things to say. What does that mean? There's something intentional about looking up, choosing to look up. Anna taught us that for her, she picks up her wooden cross or she holds the cross on her necklace to remind her, you said, of God, Jesus and life, didn't you? What do you do? to bring you back, to remember that God loves you and that he can help you through these testing times. Opening the Bible, coming to church every Sunday, celebrating communion. Perhaps you have a special picture at home. Perhaps a special Bible verse that you put on the fridge door. I don't know, but it's really good to establish holy habits that 
bring us from stopping looking around those things which are sapping life from us to looking to the one who can bring us fullness of life. I'm coming to the end now. Our reading started with Nicodemus coming in the dark. I think that's significant to us. And we step back in time to think about the Israelites in their wilderness years. And I just wonder today whether that resonates with anyone. Are you feeling you're in a time of darkness, of just not knowing? Maybe in a long wilderness time that feels unending. Perhaps you do feel like you've got those fiery serpents nipping at your heels. I believe Jesus wants you to know his light and his life again today. And it's a choice. It's a choice for us to look up, to look up to Jesus. I read a little bit from that old Victorian preacher about eternal life. Not being something in the future that goes on forever, but starting right here, right now. And he went on to say this. And that is what comes to us through the look. Not only is the process of dying arrested, but there is substituted for it a new process of growing possession of a new life. You must be born again, Christ had been saying to Nicodemus. The change that passes upon a man or a woman when once he has anchored his trust in Jesus Christ, the uplifted son of man, is so profound, it is nothing less than a new birth. And a new life comes into his veins, untainted by the poison and with no proclivity to death. What Jesus said to Nicodemus by night in that quiet chamber in Jerusalem, what he said in act and effect upon the cross when uplifted there is what he says to each one of us from the throne where he is now lifted up. Whosoever believeth shall in me have eternal life. Take him at his word and you will find that it is true. Shall we just finish with a time of prayer? Do you just close your eyes? I'm going to pray, but I just want to share um, a kind of picture that I've had in my mind all the time while preparing for the sermon. And it's um, an image from the garden. And those of you who are keen gardeners will know that often in the autumn when all the dead growth is there, you can look to the base of a plant and already you can see the little buds, the shoots of new life already there. And I just felt that maybe... For those who feel it's a dead, wilderness, barren time, those shoots of new life are there for you. They're there already, and they're ready to grow. Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart.'"